Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite podcast series. And we are not about to enter into the fourth industrial revolution. If we do things right, we can enter into the Age of Infinite, infinite possibilities and infinite resources. The Age of Infinite podcast series is brought to you by the Project Moon Hut Foundation, where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem then to use the endeavors and paradigm shift thinking along with innovations and turn them back on earth to improve how we live on earth for all species. Today, we're going to be exploring an incredible topic, what life has achieved so far and where we need to go next. We have with us today, Howard Bloom. How are you, Howard? Good, David. How about you? I'm doing great. Looking forward to this. Now, if you were to learn a little bit about Howard, you're hopefully going to learn a lot. Uh, Howard has an amazing past. He studied intensively everything from theoretical physics to microbiology. Starting at the age of 10, he then founded one of the biggest PR firms in the music industry, representing everybody from Michael Jackson and Kiss to Aerosmith and Run DMC. And if you think that being isolated during COVID is challenging, consider that Howard was bedridden for up to 15 years. So, that's our introduction to Howard. You can look anything up you'd like online. Howard, do you have an outline for us to work from? Yes, I do. You want to hear it? I do. Seven, I got to write it down. Seven bullet points instead seven? of the requisite 10. But okay. then we go on from there. Okay. okay. We the can go anywhere. Point, the first point, oxygen, sulfur, and phosphorus. Oxygen, sulfur, and phosphorus. Number two. Number two, 142 mass extinctions. 142 mass extinctions. Number three. Uh, the temperature going rocketing up and down 80 degrees every three hours. 80 degrees every three hours. Right. Okay, number four. Another climate catastrophe, a massive climate change called summer, winter, fall, and spring. Summer, winter, fall, and spring. Number five. Number five is planetesimals and volcanoes. And volcanoes. Number six. Uh, number six is 400 degrees C vents. And number seven. Number seven, which is my last one, is uh, surfing catastrophe and taming disasters. <laughs> okay, disasters. All right. Uh, I am looking forward to this number. Let's start with number one, oxygen, sulfur, and phosphorus. Teach me well, something. Once upon a, once upon a time, yeah. um, circling a mediocre yellow star, there was a poison pill of a planet. It was toxic as you can possibly imagine. And the tox, some of the toxic, just a few of the toxic elements were oxygen, um, which was a poison, sulfur, which was a poison, and phosphorus, which was a poison. The conditions on that planet were absolutely ghastly. Um, every three <laughs> hours, every three hours, the temperature went up or down 80 degrees. Every three hours, you went from one catastrophe, which is being, if you were at a single point on that planet, um, that poison pill of stone, um, every three hours, you were bathed in something toxic called radiation. Is he, is, this, is, he 80, is he 80 degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit? This is Fahrenheit. Okay. 
So you got radiation uh, so every three first, hours. Yes. First you were in radiation, just swamped with it. Then you were in total darkness, which is equally evil. Yeah. Um, the planet was on this. This is a planet, this poison killer stone, um, this home of toxicity. And because it was, its axis was at an angle to its mediocre yellow sun, um, it went through um, climate change beyond belief. And today we call one of those forms of climate change summer, winter, fall, and spring. I had a feeling. The, I, fe I had a feeling you were describing Earth. <laughs> right, and and this particular poison pill of stone had 400 degrees C vents, 400 degrees, but a very strange experiment began on this absolutely impossible planet. It consisted of mega molecules um, figuring out ways to massively socialize and reproduce themselves within lipid envelopes, within fatty little envelopes like the bubbles that a three-year-old blows with a bubble-making machine. The whole, the whole enterprise was absolutely absurd. How in the world do you work with molecules so big that they contain millions or billions of atoms? How in the world they, do they learn to make copies of themselves? How in the world do they learn to take sulfur and phosphorus and turn those poisons into pistons in their peculiar form of operation? Well, these megamolecular projects were the first cells. Um, and they took on this planet of disaster. And surprisingly, they managed to thrive. Not because the planet was friendly to them. The planet was totally inimical to them. The planet was prepared to tear them apart at any second, to disable them totally. And yet they learned their way over the disabilities and around the dangers. In fact, they learned to take the dangers and turn them into power sources. And today, that, that initial project, that absolutely impossible project, the odds against it are infinite. Um, that project today has greened and gardened this poison pill of stone. And the poison pill of stone is the earth. To give you an idea of how poisonous the things in this earth are, when the first cyanobacteria developed about a billion years ago, one to two billion years ago, uh, they took in the things that they could eat and they farted out the things that were toxic to them, the things that they couldn't incorporate within their cellular structure. And what's a little fart? Bacterial colony of seven trillion is the size of your palm, but it's so thin that if it were on your palm, you couldn't even see it. So what's a little bacterial farting? Nothing. But over the course of a billion years, those toxic farts built up. And because they were poisonous, they killed off almost all the life on Earth. The only creatures that survived were boarding house cells, cells that were willing to take in smaller borders who could actually turn this toxic stuff into an energy source. Um, those are called eukaryotic cells. Inside of them, they have these things we call mitochondria. Mitochondria take that poison that filled the atmosphere and they turn it into a power source. That poison is called oxygen. 
that gives you an idea of the extent to which life on this planet has had the obligation of being um, of, of being catastrophe servers and disaster tamers. So just uh, oh. the for the, I, I my background is biology, one of my majors. The the cellular the jump that you took from the bacteria, the one to two billion years ago, and their uh, creation or the excretion of the oxygen, the cells that formed, uh, what made those cells form in this toxic environment? What was the impetus? Do you, is, there, is there any clue? Well, first of all, life takes advantage of all toxins uh, eventually. Um, life finds the ways that those toxins are can be, instead of poisonous, they can be power sources. We don't know how they do it. We don't know how those first tiny bacteria that were able to eat oxygen and thrive using oxygen evolved. What we do know is the work of Margulis, which has proven to the satisfaction of folks in biology today that large cells that couldn't handle oxygen took in the smaller cells and today, in every single one of your cells, the, the descendants of those smaller cells still exist as your power sources using that poison, oxygen, to power you. And they're called mitochondria. Right, yes. So every single cell of you. So we don't so know where they came from. We just know that they're there. In the same sense that we don't know where this project of life took place. I mean, remember, at one point, life, there was so little life that it would have fit on your thumbnail. Um, and in fact, that was a major achievement for life, going from thoroughly microscopic to the size of your thumbnail. Just think of how prone that entire project of life, the size of your thumbnail, was to being wiped out utterly. I, I, had, in, I had never in my life thought about the fact that we started with one cell. Well, we don't know if we started with one cell often. Um, I've got this uh, paper in Physical Plus uh, called the Xerox Effect, and it demonstrates that in this universe, the same thing, the conditions for a certain thing, all take place pretty much at the same time. The result is that we have pretty much the same thing happening everywhere, which means that cells, once the conditions were right for cells, could have started all over this planet. We didn't necessarily descend from one tiny little puddle, which is Darwin's view of things, or one tiny common ancestral cell. We may have started from a bunch of ancestral cells. We don't know. So, so uh, just play with me a little bit here. Two things. First, even if it ubiquitously happened all over planet Earth, which is a very large sphere in the scope of human beings in the universe. And compared not, to a bacterium. And compared to bacteria. I've got to believe that even if it happened almost simultaneously, there still was the first one. Yes, that's there very there, likely. There's probably the first one. So the second question, taking that into consideration, the earth was cooling uh, when, he, when I think of, I'm not going to say humans, when I think of there being a ground and a, a body of water, Again, right, considering land, the size, a land oceans. and an right. ocean, I cannot picture, I cannot fathom 
that on land and water, there was nothing in any of that. Land, there was nothing. The ocean was empty for the first half billion years, 500 million years of this planet's existence. There was no life. Um, and, the big, and the big question is how the fuck did life begin? It's the most absurd process you can possibly imagine. Um, remember, a, a self-replication, Richard Dawkins has trained us to think in terms of selfish individual genes. Yeah. There is no such thing as an individual gene. The smallest genome we know, a genome is a gene team, yeah. is 400 genes. And those genes, those 400 genes have to work together to make things happen. No gene has ever assembled anything on its own. It's gene teams that have assembled things. Plus, the gene teams work with uh, an exterior structure, the lipid envelope, that envelope of fatty stuff, like a, a children's bubble. And without the bubble, life as we know it would not exist. And the bubble is self-replicating too. So was the was the DNA strand in that first cell that we know of or RNA strand was that there in the in the first that we ever conceive of so that it could replicate? Well, when Lynn Margulis and I were bouncing this around before her death about five years ago, um, what what we thought was probable is first came the lipid envelopes. Now, why do we think that? Um, if you take, if you grind up bits of the Murchison meteorite, which comes from outer space, um, and you drop them into a glass of water, they, they form lipid envelopes, little fatty envelopes immediately, little fatty bubbles. So Lynn and I felt, and I still do feel, that within those lipid envelopes, there was a special environment, that was just a little different than the environment of the sea outside the bubble. And within that special pool, that tiny little pool of water, um, the genes, the genomes assembled themselves, these giant gene teams, and began to do their thing, making copies of themselves. And the lipid envelopes were very cooperative because they basically are weaves of molecules. Mm -hmm. And every time it was time to split, they wove an entirely new envelope and buttered it off. Very cooperative. This teamwork being looked. The basic, one of the most basic laws of science is the second law of thermodynamics, which says all things tend toward disorder, all things tend to fall apart. The universe is not like that at all, not at all. That, that law is, though, though everyone in science bows down to it, prays to it, mutters it every day, that law is thorough bullshit, complete bullshit, because the universe tends to assemble things. The universe tends to climb up the stairway of complexity, not tumble down like a slinky. So it, you, it, it is a. In my, I also, I can't say that I see that, but yet, if in fact we are constantly humans are or species, and and if we just use the planet Earth, there is a complexity that has been rapidly has been expanding so if everything goes to chaos in my mind it's okay so when does it start right and there's well, no and, and and the universe is still expanding is this is it going to go to chaos and fit in another 13.7 billion years uh or, lord kelvin's idea that uh this is a uh a heat death universe 
that it's all going to disappear into a vast and uh, undifferentiated mist is such horse potty. It, it so flies in the face of everything we have learned in the science of the last 350 years, um, the years since the Royal Society was founded in Britain, um, that it's ridiculous. So in fact, things fall together, they don't fall apart. Um, at the beginning of the universe, we had a Big Bang. The Big Bang was not a chaos, far from it. Uh, the, Big Bang, the, the Big Bang was a, a rushing sheet of space, time, and speed. Now, if you and I had been sitting around at a coffee table uh, at the beginning of the universe, um, and you had predicted that there will be a pinprick infinitely smaller than a pinprick, and it would have all of the universe implicit in it, all of a universe, I, I would say, David, you're crazy. You know, we've been sitting here, we've accumulated 40,000 coffee cups so far. Um, we've been here forever, and there never has been a pinprick smaller than a pinprick, and the notion that there should be one is ridiculous, and the notion that there can be any universe is even more ridiculous. And all of a sudden, a pinprick smaller than a pinprick appears, it's a big bang, and it starts whooshing out in a sheet of space, time, and speed. And within the 10 to the minus 30 seconds, uh, of the universe's existence, that sheet of time, space, and speed precipitates the way a rain cloud precipitates into rain. Mm -hmm. And it precipitates in the form of quarks and leptons. Now, if this were a random universe, a six monkeys and six typewriters universe, since if there are gazillions of quarks, you'd expect gazillions of different forms of quarks. And you would expect them to come in forms so radically different from each other that they couldn't have anything to do with each other. And that's it not what it's happens. Structured. Yeah. It's structured. Yeah, it's 16 different forms of quarks with a gazillion identical copies of each of those um, 16 different quarks. 16 different quarks is not a six monkeys at six <laughs> hybriders universe. It is a universe falling together and creating form at each step of its development, creating form. And then something else happens. This is a communicative, gossipy, conversational, social cosmos. And those quarks cannot exist on their own. And they come with little etiquette books built into them, rules about who to avoid and who to, who to hang out with. And they immediately come together in groups of three by avoiding those that their etiquette books say you should shun um, and gathering with those the etiquette books say uh, you should get together with. And those threesomes turn out, one form of a threesome turns out to be some a radically new property that is nowhere implicit in the properties of quarks. And it's called a proton. And another form of these threesomes is, comes out in the form of something that also is not predictable from space, time, speed, and quarks. And it's a neutron. And this universe is so profoundly social that if those neutrons do not find a mate, if they don't pair up socially, in the first 10 and a half minutes of their existence, they are over now. They go through what is called beta decay. And this process of the same thing happening all over the universe continues three, 300,000 years after the Big Bang. Up until then, things have been like a bumper card smash up. Objects have been smashing at each other and ricocheting off of each other at speeds that are beyond comprehension. That's called heat. But 300,000 to 380,000 years into the universe's existence, things slow down. That's called cooling. And you and I are at a coffee table at the beginning of the universe, and we're 300,000 years into the universe's existence. 
and you come up with one of your wacky predictions and you say, you see those things that relatively speaking are the size of Empire State Buildings? Yeah, I do. They're all over the place. They're banging into each other. Um, and you see those tiny little things that relatively speaking are the size of your fist? Yeah, I see those too. They've been around for 300,000 years now. So what's new? And you say, well, I predict that any minute now, things are going to slow down to the point where those gigantic things discover they have an inanimate longing. And the little tiny things are going to discover they have an inanimate longing. And the inanimate longing of the tiny things is going to precisely fit the inanimate longing of these gigantic things 1,800 times their size. David, I know you've lost it. I know you've lost it. This is, um, uh, it's homocentrism. Um, it's anthropomorphism. We are, we are forbidden anthropomorphism in science, and that's exactly what you're using right now. And all of a sudden, things slow down, and guess what happens? The gigantic things discover they have an inanimate longing, a social urge. The tiny things discover they have an inanimate longing, a social urge. And the giant things and the tiny things get together. And what does that produce? It doesn't produce things with the qualities of the giant things, which are protons or the tiny little things, which are electrons, doesn't produce that at all. It produces something radically new that we call an atom, or that we call hydrogen, that we call helium. And the same thing happens in identically the same way all across the face of the universe. Later on, the universe will start sweeping things together with gravity. It will start sweeping these new atoms together with gravity in massive, massive clouds that look like lumpy potatoes, or that actually have spiral arms. Those things are galaxies. And no matter where you look, you will find these galaxies all over the universe. And then those sweeping start coming together with the great gravity crusades, the great gravity wars. So, so uh, where let, me, let, me, let me stop you for a minute. So okay. to get this straight, we've got simultaneously throughout this universe or this, this space that we have, the cooling, because it happens at uh, the slowing down, happens at the uh, the same time. Pretty uh, much the same time. Everywhere, yeah, but pretty right? much in relative terms. It right. therefore causes a reaction because of that cooling that creates the atom. And well, the the cooling creates the conditions. The con right, it creates the condition for the atoms to be formed, which would not happen. Right. And then what you're suggesting is. And I would have thought differently, but your suggesting is that gravity was not there at the beginning, but gravity came later on, or was yes. oh okay. So gravity was gravity was implicit from the beginning. Okay. But gravity didn't rear its head and start to operate until the formation of the atoms. And then the atoms began to get together in wisps of gas. Yeah. And then, then began the great gravity crusades. A big whisk of gas would go up against a small whisk of gas. A big whisk of, of, of gas would have more gravitational attraction than a smaller whisk of gas. And what astronomers call cannibalism would begin to take place. The bigger wisps would swallow the smaller wisps and thus would be even, even larger so that the next time they went into a head-to-head -head match with another wisp of gas, they would win, hopefully. So, so uh, is the formula where, are we describing also that because of the size of the, are you talking about the size of the mass, the mass ends up creating a larger gravity 
condition. Yes. Therefore, both. Exactly. Okay. So I just just trying right. to translate it into my English. So we now right. have we have mass attracting an, another. Masses, masses attracting mass. masses. Well, the masses are the masses are going head to head with each other. Right. So they're and the and, bigger ones are are winning. Are winning. And yes. the bigger ones are bulking up even more. And eventually, this creates gravity balls. And some of those gravity balls are so humongous that their gravity allows them to chew apart the atomic nuclei in their heart. And we perceive the screams of these dying atomic nuclei as what we call light. So that's when light first appears in the universe. Okay. And these giant sweepings are galaxies. Within the galaxies, more gravity crusades are taking place. The winners are suns. Some losers make a deal with the winners. If I hang around you at a certain distance and am obedient to you, um, will you let me live? And the answer is yes, and those are planets. Yeah. And then some other gravity balls make a deal with the planets. It's the same deal if That's I hang moon, around you moons. at a certain distance of speed. Those are the moons. Yeah. Um, so at every step, we don't see a disintegrating universe. So we're we seeing, see. we're seeing, excuse me for jumping in. We're seeing, okay. according to what you're saying, and, and the reason I'm doing this is I, I actually have said this to myself. There are people like you out there in the world who actually think about this. Uh, and, I, and I say that jokingly to myself. What you're saying is that the construct of the, uh, the law of thermodynamics saying that we move towards chaos demonstrably is inaccurate because through billions of years we are seeing not a um, a breakdown but yet a structured order where no matter right. where we go in the universe we will find the atom moving and uh, the atom and gravity coexisting to create right. these clusters. These clusters create these suns. The suns have a structural order. It, could, it doesn't have to be circular. It could be elliptical, but there's some formation where they're allowed to stay as long as they stay within that, the amount of uh, gravitational pull. Eventually they degrade or the sun explodes, but this order is a simultaneous or is a, a construct that no matter where we right. look as we know it today, it is all structured. So therefore, the second law of thermodynamics is, is inaccurate because we have not seen it. Right, nope. we've seen the opposite. So and, that's and what you're saying. Galaxies, okay. Yeah, those galaxies, as huge as they are, tens of billions or hundreds of billions of stars, they are gathering in larger herds, in herds yeah. of galaxies. Group behavior, social behavior is all over the place even among galaxies. These are called galaxy clusters. Um, so, but on Earth, this poison pill of stone, we have this astonishing act of self-assembly, far more astonishing than the assembly of galaxies, stars, and planets, or atoms. And it is these macromolecules, these huge molecules. A genome is a single molecule. Yeah. A genome can consist of 400 genes to 48,000 genes. It's a single molecule. It's a gene team. And how in the world those gene teams assemble? And how in the world they got the skill of reproducing themselves? 
is beyond my comprehension. And oh, I've been oh, come on, this come on, Howard. Time. Come on, <laughs> Howward. You're, you're gonna you're gonna tell the story and then you're not gonna have the end? Oh my god. I, well, I feel but the end I, I, I don't that, know, I don't know. I don't know if I should continue. You you've you you run into a brick wall for me. I, well, I get it. but <laughs> the, the, the point is that life is so resilient in what it does. It is so good at taking advantage of catastrophe and disaster. It is so good at harvesting climate change and all the other catastrophes on this planet that it has continued to grow and it has greened and gardened the place. Now we think that we've run out of resources and we've run out of space and we are poisoning the planet and that's ridiculous because for every ounce of biomass of living stuff on this planet, there are a hundred million ounces of dead stuff just waiting to be kidnapped, seduced and recruited into the process of life. Because that's what life is all about. Life is imperialistic. It is constantly conquering dead stuff and turning it into living stuff. So just, I want to step back for one moment because we're going to be okay. moving all the way through the age of infinite possibilities in the future. So I'm getting it. With the hypothesis, and I'm going to, let's, uh, there is the second law of thermodynamics. So let's call this the Howard Bloom Law. And there's probably right. some other name, but let's just call it the Howard Bloom Law. Right. If everything in space has this construct that, and, I, and I, I'm picturing bands going out. So there's the band of the, the Big Bang, there's the band of the proton, there's the band of the atom, and, and on and on. We got to a point where a planetary group of conditions caused a complex structure, even more complex, more orderly, to exist on Earth. This is a personal question. You could take it scientifically or personally. Right. Do you th therefore then believe that throughout the universe at this, that time in, in history, the 13.7 billion uh, years later, right. this happened universally throughout the, the universe? The odds are extremely good, 99.9%. That's that what I thought you were going to say, because, because it yeah. has, it has to be congruent. But you don't believe it? We don't it? have evidence for life anyplace else. Yeah, but your, con your construct. In the history of the universe, yeah. So your construct, your construct has to be, you can't stop the construct at Earth. You have to use that same construct across all universes, uh, not all universes, all galaxies, all planets, and that therefore, someplace else in the universe, hydrogen, I mean, oxygen, sulfur, and phosphorus, and a planet like this or another planet with another series created a similar type of development. That's the natural conclusion. Okay. I don't believe it because we have no evidence for life elsewhere. But here's our obligation. Okay. We are the first forms of life to have consciousness, and we are the first forms of life capable of taking life to other poison pills of stone, to other hostile gravity balls. And, you know, bacteria are just as clever as we are. Um, we're in a race with them for, for research and development all the time. The COVID crisis, the coronavirus crisis, yeah. is a demonstration of the extent to which the microbial world manages to outpace us in research and development, and we just barely manage to catch up and get ahead. Um, but so bacteria can do all kinds of stuff, astonishing things. Plus, bacteria know what we, with our environmental movement, have totally forgotten. They know 
that life is just the thinnest of skins right now on this planet. It took us 4 billion years to get here, but we have barely, barely scratched the surface. We don't know that. We think we're running out of resources. Bacteria do know that. So there are bacteria 12 miles beneath your feet right now, turning granite and other dead stuff into life stuff, turning it into food. They know that the resources are almost infinite. Not infinite, but very close. No, you could use, you could use you could use the word infinite. That's the name of our program. Right. I'm 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 I'll let you that one. I'll give you that one. <laughs> right. So meanwhile, the one thing we can do that bacteria cannot do, that sparrows, eagles, and hawks cannot do, is we can lift life beyond the gravity well. We can lift life beyond the atmosphere. And once you get beyond the atmosphere and beyond the gravity well, you can go anywhere with just a small amount of energy. And what is our obligation? To carry life to other hostile, impossible gravity falls. So it can take root there. We are life's messenger. We are life's transportation. System. So, okay, so I'm going to make just, uh, and I, I'm, not that I'm interrupting, but I am interrupting. Uh, when you're, the terminology you're using, I want to clarify. When you say it is our obligation to take life, I think the assumption when you say that would be to take human life. But I believe, you tell no, me, all life. I believe that what you're saying is on the spacecraft, on the, the walls, in everywhere, we're going to be bringing all sorts of life with us that yes. will end up inadvertently or advertently, we will have a virus or we will have a bacteria or we will have something that goes to another planet that potentially has the ability to succeed. Right. And look, the minute we put a human into space, my friend Buzz Aldrin, for example, has been up there. Yep. We have launched an ecosystem. What do I mean? You and I are 100 trillion cells. 90 trillion of those cells don't even claim to be us. They're bacterial colonies. And without them, we cannot survive. Um, in our gut, those bacterial colonies make our vitamin Bs, our vitamin Ps, our vitamin Ks. Um, they take food. You go down to the local store and you've got a, uh, an urge. You really want a chocolate eclair. You haven't had one in a long time. You take it back home and you eat it. What are you actually doing? You're actually chewing this stuff so it's digestible by bacteria that can digest what you can't digest. You've just bought groceries for the bacteria. They are using you as a transport system to bring them groceries. Meanwhile, what they excrete is glucose, which just happens to be the fuel that your body runs on. So mm -hmm. take a human into space, you've taken an ecosystem into space. But what I'm advocating, I have this manifesto that I wrote. It's a visual manifesto, 100 pictures and only 2,800 words, and it's called Garden the Solar System, Green the Galaxy. And it's about the obligation to take farms with us wherever we go. For example, on the moon, where you want to build the moon hut. To allow humans to live on that moon hut, they've got to garden. They've got to garden their own vegetables and fruits so that they, they are not living off of uh, nutrient-poor foods like the freeze-dried foods that NASA sends into up to the International Space Station, even on the International Space Station. The Russians have had a gardening experiment going for at least seven years, and we've had gardening experiments going up there too. And the astronauts like to raise flowers because it makes things pretty. But 
you know, the pictures that you see of space are pictures of people in tin cans. People cannot live in tin cans. There's this thing that E.O. Wilson, the father of sociobiology, calls biophilia. And there's a whole bunch of research that demonstrates that if you take a bunch of hospital patients in rooms that look out over brick walls, um, and you compare them with hospital patients who have rooms overlooking a park, um, the hospital patients who have a room overlooking a park are going to uh, heal faster mm -hmm. and live longer. Similar, so, to, similar to bringing animals into hospitals or old age homes or nursing homes. They, right, exactly. They, 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 for some reason, the biological connection causes humans to thrive. To flourish. It helps us flourish. So we need to take these green things with us. And, and, and once the, they are up there, the, the, remember, the, life's the, enormous skill is to take catastrophe and turn it into opportunity. So God knows what they are going to do with one-sixth the gravity of Earth on the moon, with one-third the gravity of Earth on Mars, with the radiation conditions on the moon and Mars. Lord alone knows that there have been 142 mass extinctions on this planet. So we're now, wait, 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 wait. We're moving to number two. <laughs> okay. Right? We're moving to number two. We're on 142 right, exactly. mass extinctions. <laughs> Which, and, and so those mass extinctions have wiped out an awful lot of species. But other species have not only survived, they have thrived. Look what, you know, we had, we humans were born in an ice age. And the peculiar thing about us is that unlike the other primates with whom we were living in Africa, we had wanderlust. At least a certain percentage of us had wanderlust. And we had a wanderlust that involved taking on the impossible disasters of the new ice ages and using them as opportunities. So humans went what's called paraglacial. We started living on the edge of glaciers, the tongues of the ice age itself, the tongues of catastrophe. And in our own time, in the last 6,000 years, there are people who have adapted to living very close to the North Pole. Um, they live off of walrus, which have also adapted to living at the North Pole, or they wouldn't be there. Um, and they, uh, they, they have built these incredible um, buildings with tremendous thermal properties, igloos, or at least they used to in the past. Now they're living in huts like the ones that we used and you want to put on the moon. Um, and it, it, humans have a tendency to reach out to disorder and to massive problems and turn them into opportunities, not over the course of necessarily just one generation or one lifetime, but over the course of several generations or even hundreds of generations in lifetimes. So, so to step back one second, just because I don't want to leave this question, you say there's 142. Uh, right. I'm, I'm, I'm completely illiterate in this, except for right. the, the, we all hear the general, the dinosaur extinction. Can you give right. me two of your favorites of extinctions? Well, I, I don't study these extinctions either, as you can see, I'm more on the positive side of things. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but, but they I did know, end up changing biology. Well, yeah, 65 million years ago, the dinosaur, we all know the story. The dinosaurs were standing around doing their thing. Um, actually, uh, Climate conditions were so radically different on this uh, planet um, that uh, dinosaurs were living in, in uh, not tropical, but intermediate uh, climatic conditions at the South Pole. 
Um, and all of a sudden, if the current theory is right, a meteor showed up in the sky and whomped into the earth in the Gulf of Mexico and uh, destroyed condi the conditions under which dinosaurs live for at least the next three years, and the dinosaurs died. And according to current theory, you all know this, mm -hmm. um, these tiny little rodents that have been living, scuttering around under the dinosaurs' feet and managing to survive the dinosaurs by coming out at night, not during the day, all of a sudden, they had the planet to themselves, or so the theory goes. And those are your ancestors of mine, these little rat-like things. Yeah. They were insectivores. Is, well, there, ins is there another one that you can share with me? Because I'm interested, and I can look it up later, but I'm just wondering, do you know one other mass Well, there extinction? are apparently, this is highly hypothetical. Um, actually, there's a lot of proof, but it's still hypothetical. And that is that there were two ice blowers, periods of ice blowers. And in those two periods, the ice on the at the equator was point, well, it was a kilometer thick. Okay. Um, and life has a difficult time under those circumstances. Um, and yet, life seems to have survived one of those ice ball Earths. So, okay. um, and, and you know that if you go to the South Pole or the North Pole and you take samples of the seawater under the ice, you'll find all kinds of bacteria. Yes. The and and it, what, and I think it's it's at least a kilometer. I don't know the true depth, but uh, in the South Pole, you're talking at least a kilometer thick. And the bacteria aren't, uh, don't mind at all. They don't wear fur coats. Um, <laughs> they don't look for a central heating. They're no. having a good time there. And just like just like the time. bacteria down at the bottom of the ocean where the thermal shafts are. Yeah, exactly. We're on absolutely impossible conditions. So remember, not only is the temperature 400 degrees down there, which is way above boiling, and it can be way above boiling because the pressure is so high. So the pressure is something like 40 times the pressure closer to the surface of the sea. And if you were, you know, I were to step out of a bathoscope, would step oh, out of one of those gizmos, <laughs> yeah, we would be crushed. Done. We would be crushed at the size of a tennis ball yep. um, in a very short amount of time. And we wouldn't find living under those circumstances easy. In fact, we'd be dead. Yes. Nonetheless, bacteria are living and thriving there, and shrimp are eating the bacteria. And tube worms, these things three feet long that look like uh, red tapes, um, are thriving there. And so life manages to take advantage of all kinds of bizarre conditions. And it will be interesting to see how life will take on the lesser gravity of Mars and the moon, um, the radiation conditions of Mars and the moon. Uh, but one way or the other, if we're gonna go there to say, and we have to go there to say, it's our obligation on behalf of all living things is to go there and take as many other species as we can with us, with the exception of in insects, who I'm not fond of. Do, um, do, you, <laughs> do, do you know Yossi Amin? Yes, his, why do I know Yossi Amin? Yossi out of um, Israel has Space Pharma, and I don't know if it was oh on yes, the show. Yossi, or those. I was just recommending him to somebody the other day. Yeah, I think we yes. might have spoken about him when we spoke earlier, I don't know. The Yossi was on the program, and I had visited him in Israel. But one of the not but one of the things he shared with me is when we have put in microgravity his laboratory experiments. Nerves grow ten times longer than they would. Amazing! Earth. Ten That's times. Astonishing. Right. So That's the, amazing. The, the challenge becomes is we're looking to regenerate nerves. 
Yet if we're up, it's 10 times, that's an issue. And if we're going to bear children or a, right. or a creature of any type is going to reproduce, that messaging system might be different or at least understood differently. And that well, could if we're going to bear children, we're going to have to have artificial gravity because um, <laughs> you're going to go into it. I know <laughs> embryos break up in a woman's womb if they don't have gravity. Yes. Um, they, they, they take for granted an embryonic embryonic development takes for granted gravity and you can't take gravity for granted up there. So, you know, the old spaceship the space stations that Werner von Braun pictured with great big bicycle wheels yes. that were constantly turning and producing artificial gravity. At some point, we're going to need to start actually building those yeah. things. And they're not on anybody's, well, they were on the drawing board of the Gateway Foundation or something like that. They called it the Von Braun Station. They now have, now have a new name for it. But um, they're still at the PowerPoint stage. Um, they're not actually producing any hardware uh, that I know of. Oh, and, um, and, I, and that's where into some degree with Project Moon, we're trying to help individuals understand some of this, there's more complexity that, that in order to be spacefaring, we need to understand and to see imagery that people, uh, that companies are tossing around saying, we're going to build the first in space and we're going to do this in the next 25 years. We're not close to these type of circular gravitational space, uh, objects that we can live in that type of environment today. Right. We're not the that guy who's the most advanced in, in habitat building is Bob Bigelow, Bigelow Aerospace in Nevada. Yep. And he has been actually building structures for space um, for 15 years. Unfortunately, his wife died three months ago and he let everybody at the company go. And we hope that after the coronavirus crisis is over, he has the gumption. Um, to come back into it and keep the company going because he's not of anybody else. I, I had asked somebody just recently because they had brought up this, uh, the condition, and I thank you for the clarity there. I did not know what happened, and I don't study this research-wise. It was just I heard it in passing that Bigelow had closed. So now there's an explanation to it, so thank you. Right, so, so hopefully it will open when, when this is over, but he's not doing artificial gravity stations at all. He's building right. great big bubbles in space. So let's take the 142 mass extinctions. Let's carry it forward. What, where are we going to go from there? Well, we have to understand, first of all, the climate change is a natural part of this planet, um, that we can actually use the resources of space to utterly, utterly abnegate, utterly wipe out all human contributions to climate change. We can do it by harvesting solar power in space and transmitting it to Earth using microwaves, uh, like the microwaves that power your cell phone, absolutely harmless microwaves. Yep. Um, if we do that, we can, um, again, eliminate all man-made carbon emissions, all man-made greenhouse gas emissions. We can eliminate the use of fossil fuels for energy production. And according to my partner in this for four years, Dr. APJ Kalam, the 11th president of India, we can lift 2 billion people out of poverty. Yes. And the Chinese, if we think that's impractical, the Chinese have committed to doing it. They want to dominate the space energy sector by 2035. They have their first factory. It's been in operation for roughly a year, making nothing but components for space solar power, the harvesting of solar power in space and sending it down to Earth. 
since that's the multi-trillion dollar industry, the energy industry, whoever dominates that industry is very likely to dominate the mid part of the 21st century. And John, um, you know John Strickland. I don't. I don't know if you know John. Uh, John Strickland is a yeah. He's my. He's the chief analyst for the group that Buzz Aldrin convinced me to found 15 years ago. Was okay, John. John and I did. We did a podcast on the logic behind moon power uh, satellites and uh, along with solving climate change. So yes, uh, that's a. It's viable technology. Absolutely. Right, and John has worked out ways to do construction in space. I'm not sure that they're the ways that construction is actually going to be done. There's something called an Arconaut, which is uh, going to go up into space and start building trusses in space. Trusses are the base of anything that you build. Um, and I believe it's supposed to go up in the next year, um, which is slow because actually here we are. We've got up right now. Elon Musk is building the first real spaceship. Um, it's called the Starship and it's capable. It's built to hold 100 people on their way to Mars. Um, or to carry 100, roughly 120 tons of cargo, which so outclasses everything else that has ever been done that it's ridiculous. Um, most, most things are, are, are a big deal. Uh, rock, most rockets are a big deal if they carry six tons of space. Six tons is a flea compared to a 120-ton elephant. Um, and those ships, you can see pictures of them. You can follow the construction of them every day. Um, Elon felt that the, the real challenge was not to create the Starship, it was to create the assembly line that could produce thousands of these Starships, because a Starship could also uh, take you point to point from New York to Shanghai um, in 45 minutes or less. Um, so, and that's one of the things that Elon is planning as a, uh, a, a source of cash flow, so that he can do his real project, and his real project is building the beginnings of a city on Mars um, with these starships. So these starships radically changed the name of the game, but what we're missing is infrastructure on the moon or Mars. Um, we need construction equipment to build habitats. We need habitats. Um, we need gardens. We need farming up there. Um, we need ice harvesting equipment because it's ice, we think at the South Pole of the Moon, and, and the Chinese are busy exploring that possibility right now um, on the edge of the biggest crater uh, in the solar system, um, which is at the South Pole of the Moon, which is where the water is supposed to be. So we need ice harvesters to take in the, the ice from the Moon and to turn it into breathable oxygen, into drinkable water, and into rocket fuel, so that you can take a starship uh, to the moon and you can refuel it there and you can either come back to Earth or you can go to Mars or you can go to Jupiter, you can go to Europa, um, one of the moons of uh, Jupiter, if I'm right. I always get these moons mixed up. There's, a, um, there's, a, there's a 79 moons around Jupiter, I think it is. Amazing. So, and Europa has oceans and we think they're water oceans. Um, they might be wrong, they might be methane oceans. Um, but one way or the other, here we are, the only life forms capable of carrying life beyond the gravity well to other poison pills of stone. And what has life's imperative been ever since it was all of the life on Earth was the size of your thumbnail? It has been to kidnap, seduce, and recruit as many data, data items as you can and bring them into the grand enterprise of life. And that is our job to advance that cause on other poison pills of stone. So the so the 
the jump, we took a jump from being complex and going to complexity. Now we're, the premise is that the next iteration is because we're able to take complexity or take uh, difficult environments and to survive and thrive through them, that our next journey is to take the construct of the species on Earth and bring them to other planets where they will learn to thrive and grow also. Right, exactly. And other moons as well. And other moons. It's very, it, much, it's very much like what we did when the first ice ages um, hit us 200, um, 200 million years ago. And 200 million, I get my fingers all mixed up, my millions and my thousands. But a long time ago, 200,000 years ago, we became modern humans. And uh, it's very much like the catastrophe of the ice ages, where we actually tracked huge distances to get to the glaciers and live on their edges. Um, we became human by thriving on catastrophe. And that's, that's our job. Um, and it's our job to take life wherever we possibly can. It's a Johnny, we are the Johnny Appleseeds of space. I, I, uh, maybe it's not our job. Maybe it is what is we, we are, I'm gonna use a different analogy. We have a laboratory, we have a black lab. Our son has a black lab, but stays with right. us often. And when she sees an animal, she's not looking to eat it. She right. just has a natural inclination to attack it. She, does not, she does not think about it. It her her right. eyes glaze over and she goes after right. it. And she will right. fight a squirrel, she will fight whatever because that's her natural inclination. So what right. you're suggesting is that, and I'm not going to say our DNA. But built into us is to, to humankind in some, in some individuals more than others is this natural inclination to need to go. Right. There's a, a blue, an old bloomism. A nation that looks up goes up. A nation that looks down goes down. Right now we're looking down. We have to start looking up. That is much more of a biological imperative than it sounds. If you watch... Uh, two lizards, two male lizards, going up against each other in a battle for dominance. Um, it's a battle to see who can break nature's most basic law, gravity, the best. It's a head-bobbing contest. And he who gets his head up the highest wins. And when he wins, he goes through a total hormonal shift. The hormones of victory flood his system, and he looks for the highest thing around and stands on it like the Lion King on the cliff overlooking the kingdom of all that he surveys. The lizard who loses also goes through a hormonal shift. He has the hormones of defeat. He turns brown. The lizard that won turns a bright green. Um, the lizard that loses turns brown and he hugs the ground as if he wanted to crawl a hole or dig a hole and crawl into it. Just the same thing you and I think when we're depressed. Um, if you watch two lobsters, two male lobsters go up against each other for dominance because lobsters have dominance hierarchies too. Again, um, he who wins is he who defies nature's most base, basic law of gravity, the best. Um, it's he who gets his head up the highest. So, and so the idea that we aspire to things on high, that's not just built into us. That's built into all complex biological creatures, all multicellular creatures with hierarchical systems. And hierarchical systems seem to be built into us. Um, and they seem to have been built into us for about 550 million years. That's how basic this drive toward the sky 
is. And once upon a time, a bunch of loony dinosaurs uh, did something that they did in biological terms, but I'm going to sum it up in anthropomorphic terms. But those anthropomorphic terms directly correspond with what happened biologically. There was a bunch of youthful loony dinosaurs who wanted to take to the sky. And their parents were conservatives. Their parents were uh, ecologic, ecology lovers. And their parents basically would have said, if you were one of their parents, why are you going up there? There's nothing up there. Take a look. There's nothing to eat. You can't eat clouds. Um, and that's all that's up there. Um, there's no place to stay. There's no place for shelter. None. There's no foothold in the sky at all. Um, all you're going to do is die. You're wasting your time and energy. Look, the earth is good to us. She's our mother. Um, she is green. She gives us stuff to eat. She gives us places to find shelter. Stick to the earth. And those loony dinosaurs did what their parents told them not to and took to the skies. And the result is that the conservative dinosaurs who hugged the green of the earth, of Mother Earth, have been gone for 65 million years. Gone, totally. And how many of the loony dinosaurs who flew have you seen today when you were walking outdoors? Yep. I, 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 I love the story because I, I'm picturing these, uh, uh, they didn't have TikTok back then and they didn't have some of these right. other, but they, they were counter to the beliefs of their parents. And nature has given us other ways to indicate how she favors breaking her rules. Um, the creatures of the sky, that includes both birds and sky mammals, bats, um, live 60% longer than the creatures of the Earth. 60% longer. And there are more species of them than there are of us Earth-crawling mammals. So what does that indicate? There are more ways of making a living in the sky than there are of making a living on the Earth. Um, and nature favors those. Um, nature loves those who oppose her most. Um, and by opposing gravity, just the way all our kin on this planet have opposed gravity, we will be doing nature's work. Nature has built that aspiration to the sky into us the way she's built it into lizards and lobsters. Uh, for another call, you and I, I would like to hear, and I'm just saying this out loud because I don't want to forget it, is I'd love at some point to discuss just privately about, or maybe at the end, your take on the transition to uh, artificial intelligence or technology, robotics, and some of the theories that maybe Elon has put out. I'm using that name just because it's a well-known name. Uh, so we won't go into now because I want to get back to number three, which is temperature shifts 80 degrees every three hours. Okay, that was back in the early stages of this planet. The planet, uh, today, we have 24-hour days. Um, back then, we had three-hour days. The planet was moving around the axis much faster. And so you went from being flooded with radiation for three hours to utter darkness. And when you uh, transition from the radiation flood to the utter darkness, wham, the temperature went down 80 degrees. Um, three hours later, when you transition from the utter darkness to being flooded with radiation, wham, the temperature went up 80 degrees. And life not only survived un under these conditions, life thrived under these conditions. 
And we're not entirely sure of how, because people who study the origins of life don't look at these massive climate changes. Um, day and night, we call them today. And summer, winter, fall, and spring, we call them today. But look how far creatures have gone to adapt to summer, winter, fall, and spring. Some birds fly 6,000 miles to get from a warm place uh, to a place that is going to be warm, um, to, to get from a place that's about to be chilly to a place that's about to be warm. Um, that, uh, uh, monarch butterflies, um, which grow in Ontario and New York State, um, over the course of four generations, they fly 2,000 miles, these tiny little things. It's impossible to believe that they carry enough energy in their bodies to accomplish anything like that at all. And their, their means of flight is not energy efficient, not at all. And yet they manage to fly uh, roughly um, 1,000 miles for each generation that, and end up in the same forest in Mexico. That is astonishing, and it's an adaptation to guess what? Climate change. So, so yes, do, we can do, use, yeah. do, you, do you think, well, I don't know how to, I'm trying to find the way to ask the question. Uh, let me make a statement then the question. Climate change is impacting everything oceanographer in the oceans from mass migrations to where creatures are uh, spawning. They're moving more north if the temperature is getting too warm. They're changing their condition, and some of them are going extinct, up to 200 species per day. They, the numbers I've heard go extinct. So do, is there in this calculation in a possibility of the rapid transition that we're making could be that one, and you probably know the, the construct where uh, humans actually make the biggest mistake of all, so they never get to where they want to go. Do you think that that could be a possible outcome? You know what I'm asking? I think that what's going to happen is unless our civilization, Western civilization, begins to realize the astonishing things that it has done and begins to see its obligation to do even more astonishing things in the future, the Chinese are going to own this territory and they're going to own the 21st century. After all, they have plans, for example, for space solar power. They have plans to colonize the entire solar system. Serious plans. They intend to achieve these things. We don't have any long-range plans like that. Our Artemis program to reach the moon is silly because it's about getting to the moon, but what are you doing when you get there? Uh, there's no, uh, there's, nobody's building a habitation. Um, nobody is, putting, is building construction equipment for the moon. The moon has wicked circumstances that would destroy a caterpillar machine of any kind because the dust is the most uh, corrosive uh, stuff you've ever seen. And if it gets in your spacesuit within three hours, your spacesuit is unusable. Yeah. And that was one of the challenges that Buzz Aldrin had. I, I, I'm just sharing this. I believe you, I, I met Buzz, Buzz at the first ever space meeting I went to, which was a PhD meeting more than it was a, a space meeting. And right. one of the things that was on the landing on the moon that is not discussed often, I didn't know any of this, is that their spacesuits were binding up. Right. Uh, the space dust tears things apart. It's like glass. Um, it, 
Yeah, razors. It is corrosive. It's you know the carborundum sandpapers that you get for really heavy duty sanding. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. it's like uh, you've got a whole planetary body or a whole heavenly body that's covered in that stuff, three feet deep, um, and the kind of thing that's on your carborundum sandpaper, and that sandpaper can tear things apart. So let's the the question is a little different, but I want to touch on what you've just said. One of the challenges that I look at in terms of if we're going to compete east and west, and I'm looking more at Earth as one total, is the uh, China itself. It's not all of Asia. China has the okay. 2035 dream. Right. China has the Belt and Road. If right. you were to go around the planet, maybe you could help me here because I'm asking if you know of any other. I would argue that no other country in the world has defined the industries that the society should go into to be ready for the 21st, the continuation of the 21st century. No other uh, country on the planet has a full-fledged plan to dominate and move forward as compared to the, the Chinese. Do you know of any no, the other? Chinese, no, the Chinese are the only ones. The Belt and Road Initiative pulls together 60 countries and 3.6 billion human beings. It's a really grand vision. And, and, it, and, and vision. it is, it's a comp competition against the West because the West runs the seas. So now you can get to Europe, which is the number one trading partner for China. And they can do that in 17, 18 days as compared to a boat from Shanghai or Hong Kong to Rotterdam, which is 32. Well, they're planning on having high-speed rail that will go all the way from the factory towns of China um, to Lisbon in Spain yep. um, and do, do it in two days. Yes. So that they can ship their products from their factories out to Europe and continue to flood Europe with uh, well-made products um, that have come in at a price that uh, otherwise would not be affordable in the case of cell phones, for example. And we have to, we have, well, there are lots of things we have to do, but we have to have a president who has a vision. And instead we have a president who has uh, a lobotomy. Um, that can be a bit of a problem. The one person who has plans of this sort is Elon Musk. And his plan is for city on Mars and for thousands of starships um, taking off at regular intervals, intervals for the destination of your choice, whether the destination is Shanghai or the moon or Mars. Um, so he's going to provide the transportation system. He knows that all he knows is a transportation we need, We need more than that. We need the whole ecosystem. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, that's Project Moon Hut. Just, uh, well, that's interesting. And that's, 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 that's we're what we've been working on for six years. So we'll go over that another time. What right. I, my question was the, a bigger question. And I think you study these things a lot more than I do. So I, I'm asking, and I, maybe I'm not saying it as well as I'd like to, there is a theory that humankind has, uh, or Earth, and life on Earth has chances to succeed and not. So we jumped over the first hurdle, and we jumped over the second right. hurdle, and we jumped over the third, and there, is, there are hurdles. And there's one belief that unless humankind makes a few uh, alterations, we could poof out of existence before we actually achieve getting there. Right. There is a, there's a theory of, uh, what, do you know what that name is called? There's a theory of that, that it poofs nope. out? Okay. Well, there is one. Do you, 
this is a hopeful, uh, I, I don't know your age, but this is a, do you believe humankind will make the race in time? Um, I believe it will make the race in time. I don't want to see the Chinese doing it. I would pre prefer to see us doing it. Chinese values are very different from ours, and they are um, dictatorial. Um, they are anti-free speech, as you can tell from what's happening in Hong Kong right now. I've lived and in I Hong Kong for ten. I've lived in Hong Kong for ten years, just you know. So my right. that well, has been right my now, home. It's, it's an agony. So I, I talk um, to my friends every day. Right, and and I suffer for their agony. I would not want to have to go through what they're going about to go through. It's but it, but I don't want the world to go through what we're what they're they're about to go through. And the purpose of the Belt and Road is not only to uh, speed commerce; um, it is to speed uh, the sway of Chinese ideas and the Chinese autocratic way of doing things, and to spread that around the world in place of democratic values. Mm -hmm. um, and I prize democratic values. I mean, I'm Jewish, and the only thing we've got is language and our ability to use it. And if you cut off our free speech, you cut off our creativity. Mm -hmm. And and I'm Jewish too, so the combination uh, historically of that ability to be able to innovate and create. So with the so let's get back on to the topic. So we've just covered actually number four too, another mass catastrophe: spring, winter, summer, fall. You've got the number five is what we're on. Well, that's the volcanoes and the volcanoes and planetesimals. Look, this was... Well, what's life, a, well, I've sorry. never heard of a planetesimal. Okay, what? a planetesimal is uh, also known as a meteor. It's a, it, it is a gravitational, it's a gravity ball. Um, okay. And it's a gravity ball that is so large that um, our, our planet attracts it. Um, and once, because it attracts it, that gravity ball comes smacking into our gravity ball um, like uh, a tablespoon hitting a pudding. Yeah. It makes a big, big, big splat. And this planet, which formed from planetesimals, which formed from these meteors that it managed to swallow whole from its, its winnings in the Great Gravity Crusades, the Great Gravity Crusades were still going on when this planet formed. And the result was that when life began, it looks like these planetesimals were still smacking into the Earth's surface. Now, for Earth, every planetesimal that smacked into its surface was a victory. It means it was able to swallow another gravity ball and to bulk up, making it more capable of swallowing even more gravity balls. But what was a victory for Earth um, was a catastrophe for life. Mm -hmm. And yet, life lived through these catastrophes. And if life can do it and mankind cannot, that would be awful. We should be capable of doing anything that early life was able to do and more because of our qualities of imagination, consciousness, and technology. And I would agree. And I learned this the other day. So uh, I think it's a, that Jupiter, because of the size of its mass, is a protector, and I'm going to use the word planetesimals, it's a protector of Earth because the mass is so large that it takes the bigger masses of asteroids and it swallows them so that the yep. Earth doesn't get hit. I didn't know that. That's an interesting... And the moon, and I don't know how the theory runs, but the moon is also a protector of the Earth. And the theory goes that without the moon... Um, we wouldn't have life on Earth. Now, I haven't looked up that theory recently, and I forget its details. 
There's, um, a, there's a guy by the name of Neil Cummings. I can introduce you to him. He's been on the show. I've known him for a while. And he wrote a book about whether life on Earth would exist if there was no moon. Right. And, uh, but the way things are going, life is so freaking adaptable that it looks like life could easily be here even without a moon. But we don't know. There's no evidence of life anywhere else. So what we do have, and has been accumulating over the last 20 to 30 years, is evidence that there's something, for lack of a better term, I call it molecular genesis. The creation, the self-formation, the self-assembly of molecules. Once you had atoms, um, first you had the first atoms, and there were only three forms of them, hydrogen, helium, and lithium. That's all there was in this universe, but the mere fact that there were atoms of all was an enormous astonishment. Um, those, once those atoms started congregating in the really, really big gravity balls, the ones that caught fire, the ones that caught fire by eating the atomic nuclei at their hearts, the ones that were spilling the photons that were cries of distress from dying atomic nuclei, those stars, when they died, when they went nova, um, when they died, they crunched those atomic nuclei part of fragments in their hearts in ways that were previously unimaginable. And if you had predicted it, I would have known you were crazy. I would have known you were wrong. They crunched those elements of atomic nuclei into 98 new social gatherings, 98 new forms of social structure. Um, and those 98 forms of social structure became once is that, they got a, Is that the periodic table? Yes, they became the periodic <laughs> table. Once they, once they spewed out, this was not garbage. The universe was not garbaging her way down. She was garbaging her way up because the garbage was rich in possibilities. It had these 98 new forms of atomic nuclei. And when they were let loose from the gravity of the dying star, they were able to find electrons to circle them. So we, the became, we, became more we became more complex. We, yes. we went from a simplistic three to this super, supernova, the crushing, and we ended up with more, not less. Yes. And those 98 are responsible for life. Now, something else is responsible for life. Those atoms began to gather in even greater social aggregations called molecules. And that's molecular genesis. And I keep looking for the figures on when this molecular genesis began and how it proceeded, but no one seems to be studying that. Nonetheless, wherever we look in this solar system and beyond it, in this galaxy, we find wisps of gas that contain some of the first biological um, molecules, um, molecules based on carbon. Um, so we find them all over the place. But these are relatively simple molecules. These are just, at most, hundreds of atoms, and in most cases, six or seven atoms. How we went from those simple molecules to the complex molecules of a genome um, with billions of atoms in, in such a well-structured order that they can call to other atoms and make them assemble or call to other uh, molecules and make them assemble in a, a, a precise replica of themselves 
I mean, that's beyond astonishing. So we, there's a field that we're missing, molecular genesis, telling us when and how these first molecules assemble. And then we don't know how in the world they assemble to put together life. Which, which, yes, which begs to, uh, and if you took that iteration is not only is it structured in the, the brain, we don't even have to say the human brain, but the ability to be cognizant of what's around you. Ah, but here's the trick. Genomes, in the same way that brains with ideas reflect the world around us, and with science we try to make, we try to distinguish, between those ideas that do reflect the world around us and those that don't, genes went through this same process. A gene is a record of how to survive in a given environment. In other words, it is a way of summing up in a molecular code the environment around it. And it so passes it on. So you're saying yeah. we, our gene learns and then right. it passes on to the next generation of experiences that they had. Right, exactly. So the universe began looking at herself in a mirror through symbolic systems of representation of herself with the first genomes. And now she does it through our consciousness and ideas. She examines herself in a mirror and finds a way to symbolically represent herself. My point was that you're asking for this molecular, uh, what did you call it, the molecular genesis. Molecular genesis. And what I'm saying is, you just described the complexity. My hands are up in the right. air right now as I'm doing this. You described the complexity, and I'm saying even that complexity is so complex, but then to say that all of these, these molecules, these structures within our body are able to recall, think, re-aggregate, and do. Well, they can't think, but they do certainly carry within them um, a, a record. But um, what I mean is the human the brain as it acts as a whole. Oh, yes, right. That if that they, is even, that's another that's a to the four hundredth power another questionable situation is we can't even right. figure out the molecular genesis to figure out how intelligent thought and that could be for a dog looking at and hunting down or a lion hunting down or an amoeba eating something how well, how that happens we don't even know so the, these are huge questions. So these questions and, and a different way of looking at science is in my book, The God Problem, How a Godless Cosmos Creates. And Barbara Ehrenreich says that uh, we've had uh, 200 to 350 years of science and it's all been reductionistic. It's all followed a pattern that was laid out by Aristotle 2,400 years ago. And that this book, The God Problem, How a Godless Cosmos Creates may be the first step, step into the next 250 years. Of science. And what we say at Project Moon Hat is we can't be reductionistic in our approach to space. We can't be reductionistic in the, into how we live on Earth. We have to create a new evolution or a new iteration of how we look for hope and the future. So there's a similarity in that same construct. Yes, So exactly. if, if we were to take, now you did say volcano, so I did stop you on the uh, the first in the volcano, and I'm as well. We believe extra? currently, as of the last week, um, we believe that vol the gigantic volcanic eruptions were responsible for some of these mass extinctions. According to one study, mass extinctions take place every 26.5 million years, and that's the basis for the calculation that we've had 142 mass extinctions. 
um, and volcanoes have apparently played a very significant role in some of those mass extinctions. Um, volcanoes have apparently, some of them have been so large, they've been capable of blacking out the sky for up to three years. Like the one that they say in the United States, which the right, oh. the super right. volcano is that, is yeah, that what they're called? The, the super volcano under the yellow under Yellowstone. That's allegedly here. Yes. Um, now, in the early days of the Earth, when life was forming, these things were much more common. Um, the the mantle of the Earth, the core of the Earth, all the various layers that we know on the Earth were still in formation. I mean, it takes a lot of work to turn gravity balls, like planetesimals, meteors, um, into a mantle uh, and a liquid core, um, and not to mention continents and seas. Um, but And that work was still taking place um, when life first formed. How do we know? Because there was a giant continent called Pangaea um, when life first formed. And eventually, that continent broke off into seven continents. And those are the continents that we know today. Um, Asia, Europe, Africa, South America, North America, they were all part of one gigantic continent at one point. So an awful lot of geological change has been going on um, in the time that life has been here. And, and then uh, when two tectonic plates meet and their clash um, sets up a, a, a batch of stone that Shots up high into the sky, called the Himalayas. Um, the exposure of all of that stone, um, that stone starts absorbing certain elements from the atmosphere and changes the atmosphere and creates climate change. So what we humans have to know, what we have to get used to is, yes, we are capable of getting rid of the human contribution to climate change. No, we are not capable of getting rid of climate change. Climate change has been endemic to this planet since this planet first began. What does that mean? It means in the same way that once upon a time you handled the climate by uh, stealing the skins, the furs of animals and wrapping them around us and by building uh, tents. Uh, the first tents were 17,000 years ago. They were made of mammoth tusks, mammoth ribs, and mammoth hides. Um, those are climate control technologies. And what we need are climate stabilization technologies. If we truly want the climate of the earth to be like it was in 1650, which seems to be the general goal these days, then we're going to have to develop the technologies to accomplish that. Now, at a, um, a conference in Japan uh, about six years ago, um, there was a woman from the European Space Administration who showed us that the giant satellites that we have to create in space Solar farms, five miles by five miles, five miles across and five miles in depth, um, that those could be used to power lasers, that when a hurricane is on its way toward Jamaica, um, we could use the laser to heat an edge of the hurricane and change its direction so it doesn't reach um, Jamaica. But the real trick is hurricanes and tornadoes are energy sources. They are massive energy sources. And our task, and I know it sounds ridiculous right now, but humans accomplish ridiculous things. We've been doing it ever since we've been human. Um, our task is to harness these things and make them work for us, make them energy sources. But, but one way or the other, we have to create climate stabilization technologies if we want the climate to stay the way it was in 1650, because that is totally unnatural. 
massive climate change is mother nature's way. Do we have a right to disrupt nature? Well, remember the lesson of the loony dinosaurs who took to the sky. Nature loves those who oppose her most. She loves those who break her rules because it's on the backs of those who break her rules that she makes it up the next stair step on the ladder of complexity or the stair step of complexity. And climbing that stair step is something she is inexorably drawn to. That's her way. That, that is her core. It's when I do these interviews, as, as I shared, and I think anybody's listening and understands, they're in their conversations. I'm, I'm here to learn. And it's interesting how my mind is racing to look at the complexity in a additive way, not a, subtra- not a, a law of thermodynamics degradation way, but just that you've given a different angle on it. And then to take the hurricane and how do we harness it yet at the, I, I would actually say the word is, the, the, <laughs> bless you, Sorry, bless you. No, no, no worries. The, I think the word harness is probably, in my mind, is not the exact word. And my mindset is we're not, we would like to be able to, like a horse, harness it and control it so that it doesn't still hit into Jamaica, yet at the same time, we can create and, and take the energy and use that positively for all species on Earth. Right. So and that- one of the members of one of the groups that I run, um, the, the Big Bang Tango Media Lab, um, has a vision of chimneys um, two miles high that would take advantage of these differentials in temperature um, and the winds that the differentials in temperatures create in order to harvest energy. Uh, how practical that idea is, I don't know. But remember, a lot of humans have done a lot of totally impractical things. So, and this is for someone who's listening in, just because, as I told you, sometimes I have to break out of this. The there's a differential in temperature from the base to the top, and it goes through. It's not a, a hurricane or typhoon, depending on how you label it or call it. Is not one ubiquitous set of conditions. And I'm, do you could you go into that a little bit, just so that it. In your terms, well, it's sim- it's simple. It's simple convection. Uh, now, yeah, I understand. I just wanted. To, I want to get yeah. somebody else who doesn't, who's coming in and ha- doesn't have a science background, to get a little better understanding. So, describe it to me in a way that you would give me the information, so I could understand it at a more complex level. Well, warm air rises, um, and cold air settles on the ground. And if you've got a two-mile high chimney, it's cold up there. It's very cold up there, and it's much, much warmer at the bottom. So the warm air is going to rise um, to, to join with the cold air, penetrate the cold air. Um, and, and there's stuff about how many pounds of pressure per square inch or how many molecules uh, per square inch there are in cold uh, air. Um, it's dense. There are a lot of molecules per square inch. In warm air, there are a lot fewer molecules per square inch. One way or the other, the warm air goes up. So if you're harvesting that difference between the warm air at the surface and the cold air way up there in the jet stream, um, you can produce a lot of energy and it's temperature differentials of that kind that power hurricanes and tornadoes. 
So you're harnessing the power of hurricanes and tornadoes. But I would like to more directly uh, harness the hurricanes and the tornadoes themselves. That may be, well, it is, of course, impractical, but we humans do impractical things all the time. So, Life has done impractical things all the time. So, so let's take on uh, number six, which is the 400 events. Um, okay, those, uh, we pretty much covered. The, the richness of life down there is just okay. astonishing. Yep. And the so why, why do you say 400? Is, oh, there's the 400 pounds per? The 400 degrees. Degrees. Uh, uh, okay, that's yeah. why I was, I didn't, I, right. I was writing as fast as I could. I didn't put a degree somewhere. Uh, aha, okay. Okay. Uh, okay, and then the surface catastrophe maintaining uh, number seven. Okay, the universe operates by surface catastrophe. Look what she did. Stars were catastrophe. At least they were to the atomic nuclei at their heart that were being chewed to pieces. Um, star death was a catastrophe. It destroyed one of the most astonishing things nature had ever created, a star. And out of that star death came 98 new forms of atoms. That's astonishing. What does that teach you about nature's relationship to catastrophe? She uses catastrophe to climb the ladder of complexity that climb the stair steps of complexity. And, and she's always basically going, fuck you to what came before. Um, she's always outdoing it with something that seems utterly impossible and utterly inconceivable. And if that's nature's imperative, and it is, then that's our job too. We have to be disaster tamers. Um, we have to be uh, catastrophe surfers. We have to um, do things that are utterly outrageous and that seem to go utterly against nature's laws, because that's nature's most basic imperative. That is nature's most basic law. So are we, do we have to, my mind, what I'm, what I'm thinking is 13.7 billion years. It took a long time to get from age to age to age. It took a long time for humans to get to a point we're going faster and faster and faster. On the grand scope of the universe, we're a blip in time. What you're saying is we should surf within the surf within the surf to find the wave that we could ride. Yes. And we should stop looking at disasters just as disasters, because they are when they kill people at gasoline, um, and start looking at them as opportunities. But most important, we should take to the skies, just like the loony dinosaurs who flew except the loony dinosaurs who flew were restricted to the atmosphere. It's atmosphere that allows their wings to keep them aloft. We've gone beyond wings. We've gone beyond wings in a mere 103 years. And it's our job to take life and ourselves to the skies. So I would like to take it in two questions then off of that. Number one is, uh, uh, number one, and I'm going to ask this question first, and then I'll tell you the reason why. What do you project or what do you see or what is your forecast as to how we will become or get to space? You, don't, you could use any theory. It could be Elon's or it could be yours, however you want. And that would be the first one. And the reason I'm asking is because when we have the conversation about Project Moon Hut, I want to be able to understand your thinking. So that's the first question. What, how would you answer that? NASA's not going to get us there. Um, NASA hasn't been getting us anywhere since 2011. It has not been getting humans anywhere. It's been getting wondrous, astonishing robotic expeditions um, into the skies, to Mars in particular, but not humans. 
Um, and it's not going to because NASA is just a giant billion uh, sink for billions and millions of dollars to keep the space military industrial complex alive, falling into ridiculous. Um, but Elon is a man with a vision. And he's a man with a vision who is capable of implementing that vision. And it, we, gotta, we should have security guards around Elon at all times to keep him safe because he's the only visionary really going outside the box on planet Earth today. And the other one is Xi Jinping, but he is simply picking up all of the fantasies of the West for the future that we have discarded because we're busy lacerating ourselves over things like racism, which is a problem we definitely have to solve. Um, but we are convincing ourselves that we are the most polluted, awful civilization in the history of mankind. No, we are not. Um, if you've been born in a Western civilization in 1850, your life expectancy would have been 38.5 years. If you've been born in Western civilization in 2000, your life expectancy would have been 78.5 years, 40 years longer, more than twice as long. If you took a Stanford Binet IQ test from 1916, the first year it was administered, and gave it to 100 random kids off the street today, they would register as marginal geniuses with an IQ of about 135. Why? Because we've added 35 points to the average IQ in the last 104 years. Um, if you look at the poorest paid worker in London in the year 2000, she earned what an entire tenement full of workers earned in 1850, Irish dock workers. Um, she, earned, she would have earned what seven of them earned, and that's not calculating things like her cell phone that even Prince Albert, um, Queen Victoria's husband, a techno freak, um, could not possibly have owned, despite all of his wealth. Um, if you were born in 1650 in the West, or if you were born in one of those indigenous civilizations that lives at peace with its fellow men and in harmony with nature, your odds of dying a violent death at the hands of a fellow human being would have been 10 times what they are today. In other words, Western civilization has increased peace by a factor of 10, and Western civilization has increased the average height by four inches, except in Holland, where it's increased the average height by seven inches. Um, Western civilization has done all these things, and no other civilization in the history of mankind has done anything like it. So if our great-grandparents could give us an extra 40 years of life, what do we owe to our great-grandkids? Another 40 years of life, or more. If our great-grandparents could give us 35 extra points on our IQ, what do we owe to our great-grandkids? Another 35 points or more on their IQ. If our great-grandparents could increase our earnings by a factor of seven, then we it is our obligation to increase the earnings of the poorest paid worker by a factor of, by a factor of seven for our grandchildren's time. Um, and if peace has gone up by a factor of 10, then it's our obligation on behalf of our grandkids to increase it by a factor of 10 all over again. And we won't bother with the hype. Let's hope that continues to go <laughs> on too. Um, but you have to realize something when it comes to defying gravity and the natural inclination toward the sky that is built into our biology. Every morning you wake up in a bed horizontal in the in form that gravity naturally dictates for you. And then you put your feet on the floor and you do something impossible. You stand up. You defy gravity for the rest of the day. You are like a pencil being balanced on its point. 
and you manage to do that with software in your brain, not primarily with your hardware, but with your software. Um, that is how deeply nature wants to rise. That is how deeply nature aspires to the skies. So do you, when I say, when, if we were to give, without putting it on Elon, can you give me the next 30 years that you see? Yeah, Elon's uh, starships are going to so, provide So you're, you're believe that, you believe that the answer, you believe that the answer is Elon? Yes. Okay. Um, he's the only one doing what he is doing. The, literally the only creature of any kind on planet Earth doing what he is doing. And those okay. starships will provide a large capacity um, transport system to the skies or between cities. Um, somebody's got to wake up to the fact sooner or later that we need to build the infrastructure elements, the farming, the habitats, yeah. the construction equipment, the ice harvesters. We're, we're going to um, go, we're, you and I are going to have fun. I hope you know that when we're done, we're going to have fun when I go over what Project Moon had to spin about. Right. Well, so, I have a, I have a meeting in 11 minutes. Okay. So, so, so okay. So that's perfect. Uh, right. The, this was, this is different than what I expected. Uh, in terms of the angle, or and, and that's what I love about having these experiences, having over 190 interviews, is that the ability to learn things in a way that were it was great. You you brought brought me brought the listeners through a journey, which I I definitely appreciate. I appreciate you taking the time to to make sure that uh, that you would be on the program. So I, I forgot who was the one who introduced us. But, I, I've got to thank them too. I'll look it up because there's a connection. Right. It, I have it too. It's Bruce Pittman, possibly. I'm not no, sure. no, no. It was um, from Spacecom. Steve Wolf. Uh, oh, that was, yes, yes, Steve Wolf. Steve Wolf had said that I should get you on because he's going to be on the program. And Peter Gerritsen also had mentioned you. Oh, that's terrific. Uh, from a different angle. He's like so a brother to me. He's, he did a phenomenal interview. He's, it was really great so as you said we've had an for first few interviews we've had we have some really powerful strong uh, individuals and franklin being on th this week too i think is going right. to add to the the richness so for that uh i want to thank you for taking the time so thank you very much well it's for, been great fun david for those i want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen in and I, I sincerely hope that you learn something new today that will make a difference in your life, your life, and the lives of others. And in this case, the life, uh, the existence of, or the, the spreading of our wings to other planets and, and into space. Uh, again, once we are Project Moon Hut Foundation, you can learn more about us by connecting with us at uh, info at Project Moon Hut. Dot org. The website is not where it needs to be today. We're working on a new website. So if there was one way to connect to you, Howard, it's what Howard would be HowardBloom.net. Okay, and so Bloom is B-L-O-O-M, like the flowers that bloom in the spring trail off. I had a Larry Bloom from the island who I went to camp with when I was young, so I knew the uh -huh. B-L-O-O-M. And right. we would love to connect with you. You could reach out to me at david right. at projectmoonhut.org. You can go to YouTube and we've just put up some videos. So there's project, it's the first time we're actually releasing these. There's one up there 
And that is at the YouTube, you look up Project Moon Hut and you'll see the Project Moon Hut Foundation logo. You can connect with us on Facebook. You can connect with us at Project Moon Hut at Twitter. You can also connect to me at, at Goldsmith on Twitter. And we're, we're here. So if you want to learn more about what we're doing and be involved, we would love to hear from you. So that said, to everybody, I'm David Goldsmith. And thank you for listening.